This program, of course, is presented by Pro Wrestling Illustrated, the most widely read, widely sold, and respected wrestling magazine in the world today. This is the Pro Wrestling Illustrated Podcast. I am your host, PWI senior writer Al Castle, back once again with my co-host, fellow senior writer Dan Murphy. How are you, Dan? You can't get rid of me that easily, man. I'm still here. I'm, I'm like a recurring cough that just won't go away. So and if I'm, I'm back again for another week. And if I'm right, you've got a birthday coming up, right? I do, actually, yeah. It's, uh, it's uh, September 29th, so uh, please send gifts courtesy of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, and uh, I'd be happy to accept them. This, the same address they use for the uh, PWI 500 bribes? Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, happy birthday, Dan. Happy early birthday. By the time this goes off, uh, it'll probably pass. I hope you have a good one. Uh, and we've got plenty to talk about here. Later in the podcast, we're going to be listening to an interview that uh, our fellow senior writer, Harry Burkett, conducted back in 2006 with Bobby the Brain Heenan. Of course, we had uh, just recently the tragic news of his passing. Uh, Dan, you and I are going to be talking a little bit more about Heenan in a bit. And I think this interview uh, from <clears throat> more than 10 years ago uh, really shares some insight on uh, his his career. I believe when this was uh, conducted, he had just recently been been diagnosed um, with the uh, the throat cancer that would, would really complicate his life in, in this last uh, of, a chapter of his life. But there's plenty of, of the uh, the wit and the smarts and the humor that uh, I think made uh, Bobby Heenan such a, an important figure in uh, wrestling's history. Uh, a lot of it was uh, still there when he talked to Harry those years ago. Uh, and we're going to be talking a lot more uh, current events, some fallout from uh, the last pay-per-view, uh, No Mercy, and talking a bit about uh, Braun Strowman, and John Cena, and uh, a lot more. So uh, stay tuned. Uh, right now, let me mention Pro Wrestling Illustrated, the PWI 500, is the current issue. It is available now at pwi-online.com. By now, I think it should be uh, on newsstands as well. So run out and pick it up. Uh, inside, you'll find, you know, for 27 years now, we've been doing it, and it is the definitive list of uh, uh, pro wrestlers, the best pro wrestlers in the world. We rank 500 of them. It is about the biggest thing we do all year, a huge undertaking, something we're terribly proud of. And I think this issue in particular uh, is getting a lot of great feedback, uh, in large part, I think, because of our number one pick, Kazuchika Okada, the IWGP uh, champion. Uh, the first time we've had a Japanese wrestler uh, in the number one spot. And I don't know if it's the first time, it's probably not the first time we've had a Japanese wrestler on the cover, right, Dan? I mean, if you go back, uh, we've never no, we've never had one on the cover unless it's been part of a collage. Even um, where you even Inoki, we never had on the cover. If you go way back when, no, no, never, really? never. Uh, not that I'm aware of. I mean, maybe one of the sister publications, Sports yeah. Review, or something like that, back in the day. But no, I think that this is the first time we've ever had a uh, Japanese uh, wrestler um, solo featured on the cover. Yeah, and it's a great issue. It is mostly the PWI 500. I know my column isn't in it, um, this issue, because so much of it is ju just, uh, I think it's something like 60, 70 pages just of, of PWI 500 coverage. So uh, a ton to go through. Uh, again, I think it's about the, the, the biggest, most important thing we do all year. So uh, definitely run out there and check it out either on pwi-online.com or your newsstand, um, you could buy the one issue, you could subscribe. As I always say, the longer you subscribe, uh, the deeper the savings. 
Uh, so go ahead and do that. And uh, we're just about wrapping up the next issue, uh, right, Dan? I know uh, you, you gave me a preview of your, your column, and, and I think that might be some, some fodder for a discussion uh, here on the show. What else have you got coming up? Oh, the Female 50, right? Female 50 is coming up in the next issue. Yeah, that's all completed. And uh, this year it's really interesting because uh, primarily in the past we've done the Female 50 just based on uh, women who compete out of the U.S. and Canada primarily, with a couple of exceptions, like Madison Eagles, who's from Australia, but held you know the Shimmer title and everything else. Um, so she made the cut. Uh, this year we've opened it up to internationals. So we have Mexico, Australia, Japan, uh, the U.K., all, all in there. Uh, so it, it's fantastic because it, it really gives us a chance to get in Joshi wrestling, a few other things a little bit more. And some fresh faces who are going to be, uh, you know, getting featured in the magazine for the first time, which is uh, which is exciting. Yeah, and you know, I, I know we get some heat about um, some omissions from the 500 with 500 spaces to fill. I can imagine there's just a ton of, of people who don't make it to the 50 with just 50 slots, and as you said, now expanding to to be more international. I imagine there's a, a wealth of of great talent that won't make it on the list. Yeah, that is definitely true. That, that's the, the drawback. Uh, I mean, I could easily make the, the female 50 of the top 100 or, or maybe even 200 with women's wrestling uh, today because there are so many. Um, but, yeah, there are some very, very good women wrestlers who will likely, including some in NXT, honestly. Wow. Um, I'll say, like, Peyton Royce didn't make the list. Uh, wow. And a few others. Yeah, exactly. Really? Wow. So, yeah. So you have people like Prepare that. Prepare to get the, where, uh, the emails. That, <laughs> yeah, well, wow. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure. But, I mean, once you see everybody that's in there and, and you begin to say, okay, well, where where would we spot right. this person who, in? Who, who, gets, who doesn't uh, belong? Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, so, so it's, it's, it there's definitely a, a lot of people who are not included, but that's why we, you know, we, we make the tough decisions and we go with the, the ones who had the best year, just like the 500. Yep, yep. And a lot more are going to be in that issue. Is that the, what do we call that, the February issue? I forget. I think so. I think yeah. that might be it. Uh, I've got uh, a, a couple of fun features that I, I did this month. One, uh, I interviewed um, just this past Monday, none other than Braun Strowman, less than 24 hours after uh, his big match at No Mercy. I talked to him, uh, and he had a lot of interesting insights about that match, where he is in his career. I think it was probably a, as candid a conversation as uh, you'll see anywhere with Braun Strowman, uh, so that'll be coming out. And I've got a conversation uh, also in this issue with uh, Ring of Honor star Dalton Castle, who is on the rise, no relation, and uh, a fun discussion. You know, I, I got the assignment before exactly what we knew what the feature was going to be, and um, I, the the subject matter essentially kind of became how he's become this reluctant hero for the LGBTQ uh, community, and um, it was a really fun conversation, and it's not really for the reasons you'd think it is, uh, so, so I'll leave it at that. You definitely want to check it out. And a lot more. My column is back. Your column is back. Uh, and, and a lot more in this issue. So uh, now's the time. PWI-online.com. And uh, again, if you subscribe now, you get the 500. You get the next issue. Uh, and uh, a lot more. So do that. Find us on Facebook uh, and Twitter at Official PWI. I was live tweeting No Mercy. Always have fun doing that. And uh, send us an email here at PWI Podcasts at Outlook.com. 
Also something I, I don't ask too much, but but if you go on iTunes and subscribe, please leave us a, uh, a nice review, a five-star review. That helps us uh, a ton. So uh, if you're enjoying the show, we would appreciate uh, the feedback. If you don't, keep your thoughts to yourself. <laughs> Nobody, <laughs> if you have nothing nice to say, uh, don't say anything at all. Uh, anyhow, uh, Dan, let's hit on a couple of uh, current events things. Uh, firstly, again, not so much current events, but I, I think we haven't talked about it since it happened. The passing of Bobby Heenan, uh, just a huge, huge loss. And, you know, whenever you get a, a star from yesteryear who had some prominence, you hear a lot of superlatives, one of the best this, one of the best that. And with Bobby Heenan, I think there is, uh, it, it is not an overstatement to call him the greatest manager of all time and one of the very best wrestling performers of all time. Uh, so just a gigantic, gigantic loss. Yeah, it is. And he was just such a great, well, you know, he, he always said he was a broadcast journalist, you know, that he, he coined that term with, uh, with, you know, his early primetime wrestling stuff with Rilla Monsoon and everything. Uh, but man, he was such a versatile guy be, being a, a real heat magnet as a manager, you know, plus a, a career as a wrestler. But even in the, the 80s, when he was transitioning from being a manager with the Heenan family, not a stable, it's a family, you know, that, that whole thing, um, to, to becoming an announcer, uh, Heenan was just able to not only make the fans hate him, um, it, although grudgingly also like him, you know, they loved to hate him, but he was so good at getting the fans to love whoever he was feuding with. Yeah. I mean, he, he would rant on Hogan constantly, always hating Hogan. Behind the scenes, they were they were thick as thieves. They loved each other, but th- they had this dynamic where Heenan made everything. You know, he he helped make Hogan bigger than life. The the Ultimate Warrior and those Weasel Suit matches and everything like that made the Warrior. Um, and everybody looks at what Heenan accomplished on his own, which is incredible. I mean, it's a subject of books. Not to mention what he's done in his personal life and overcoming cancer and, and everything, and the the inspiration that he was later in his life. Uh, but what he did for everyone around him and what he contributed to the overall show and the overall product is you can't put a, a price tag on it. I mean, he was just a pioneer and uh, uh, somebody who anyone who saw him perform uh, will never forget him. Yeah, I think we talked about it uh, last week uh, in the context of the Roman Reigns, John Cena uh, promos and how, you know, that delicate balance of putting down an opponent while also, in a way, lifting him up, right? And uh, nobody did that better than Bobby Heenan. Bobby Heenan uh, would get heat on his guys, he said, and his opponent. But in getting heat on his opponent and tearing down uh, his opponent— Again, and, and it was basically you're talking about a baby face. He would also lift them up because he was uh, – it was so vile and low, the cheap shots that he was taking, that it built sympathy for the baby face. And he also would, would never undercut a, a wrestler's ability. So Hogan is the one that comes to mind the most because he, he managed so many people against Hulk Hogan. Um, during his time in the 80s, and inevitably, because this Hulk was Hulk Hogan, Hogan would almost always come out on top, and the frustration of Heenan, uh, you know, helped get over Hulkamania as this thing that was, uh, you know, immortal, unstoppable, that, that kind of thing, uh, because Heenan was just, he was always at kind of his wit's end, what's it going to take to bring down this guy, 
Uh, and in doing that, it was an acknowledgement of, of how powerful, how amazing, how unstoppable Hulk Hogan was. Uh, and, you know, like you said, I, I think he had a fondness for Hulk Hogan, but he did this for guys who he couldn't stand, you know, Ultimate Warrior being yeah. one. Um, exactly, and, yeah. And, and he, 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 really he, raised, I mean, he was Lex Luthor. Yeah, it would have he taken very little for him to, to, to tear down uh, the Warrior, and he didn't. I mean, that's something that's not talked about um, very much is how instrumental Heenan was in getting the Ultimate Warrior over in, in the 80s and 90s and, and Warrior's program with, with Rick Rude and some others. Um, Heenan was just a, a master. And uh, I know folks who, who follow his career before even I was born – uh, we'll talk about, you know, the, the best version of Heenan was the AWA version. By the time he came at the WWF, it was already a little bit watered down. Uh, and, and that might might be the case. I've seen some of it. I've seen some, some of his work with, with um, uh, Nick Bockwinkel and Black Jack Lanza, yep. and he was phenomenal, no, no question. But uh, people also shouldn't undercut how great he was in, in WWF, and I know sometimes that's kind of the, the en vogue thing to do. Oh, you know, he was really great before before he made it, you know. Um, in, in WWF, but look, he was amazing in, in WWF. He, he really was. By the time he hit WCW and, and sort of coasting, uh, it definitely, you know, uh, uh, took a dip. And, and part of it was that he was in the awkward position of being a, a heel announcer, but having to rally with WCW against the NWO. That almost put him in, in this awkward position of, of kind of having to be a babyface announcer. Uh, and that just speaks to what a mess the NWO thing uh, became. Um, but he was just brilliant. And, and I, um, I was listening to an interview with him, with uh, Dave Meltzer. Uh, this probably was 2001. I think it was after he left WCW. Um, and, you know, a long-form kind of shoot-style interview. And what's really fascinating is as you know, the, the Bobby Heenan character never felt like a put-on, right? It felt like this is just who this guy is. He's kind of a jerk. He's smug. Um, and you you hear him with Meltzer, and there's some of that. I mean, certainly quick-witted, but also brilliant, brilliant uh, uh, to the wrestling business. And that's the part I think you didn't, you didn't see so much because he was just portraying a character. But hearing him kind of from the outside, his perspective and his views on wrestling, what works, what doesn't work, you know, mistakes that WCW made. Um, it, it's fascinating, and he was basically right on, on everything he said. So, uh, you know, the, the the brain was more than, than just a gimmick. This guy really was uh, uh, brilliant and, and had just a, a great brain uh, for the business. So what a loss. And um, uh, granted, I mean, he, he, his contributions to the business uh, were few and far between, especially with a lot of the health issues he's had in recent years. But, but just to think that that's something that's in the past now uh, is, uh, yeah, that's tough. It's hard because, again, a, a one in a million uh, performer. And something I heard him say uh, in that interview that I think really holds true is, and, and speaks to how brilliant he was, he says he he managed like a wrestler and he wrestled like a manager and uh, uh there's something to that when he was outside the ring you know every every time the babyface would would lay in a shot to to his wrestler or would get the win you'd see him just flip his lid there's so much passion uh outside the ring and when he was in those circumstances where he had to work in the ring just bumping like a maniac a coward afraid just getting over his opponent like gangbusters yeah, he had a terrible neck. I mean, yeah. even back to the late '80s, and he was still bumping like that. And I mean, you know, it, it, it just goes to, to show what a consummate pro he was. I remember, you know, there were matches where Hogan would throw him out over the top rope, 
And that's, you know, it's not an easy bump to take yeah. when you're an older guy, you know? And he was doing this all around the, 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 the horn, you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he was just, uh, he was a absolute, um, you know, he, he was, uh, he was a gamer. He was a, a soldier. Yeah. Yeah. And so funny and, and not uh, what I, uh, one of the things I, I put on Facebook right after I heard his passing, you don't even need to qualify it for wrestling. One of the funniest people in, in wrestling ever, one of the funniest people who's ever lived. I mean, uh, Heenan was just hilarious, you know, and I, and, and I watched tons of old eighties, uh, WWF and 90s WWF stuff all the time with him on commentary and uh, you know I'll, I'll go to sleep just with old YouTube videos on and half asleep I'll start cracking up over something that, that Heenan said just because it's and so quick so I mean the timing is just unbelievable so uh, yeah yeah so rest in peace brain um, anyhow uh, uh, what else no mercy over the weekend not a ton of news coming out of it but I thought a really good show um, I guess the, the, the couple of big items uh, to hit on uh, John Cena and, and Roman Reigns uh, Reigns won and it was a very good match I guess the, the bigger news coming out of it is uh, uh, Cena's reaction after the match uh, it, it, a lot of people talked about it almost felt like kind of the retirement ceremony uh, all that was left was to you know leave his, his proverbial gloves in the ring and then he did uh, talking smack afterwards and he didn't confirm it but but made it clear that yeah, he he's taken a step back and and already has for a long time, um, but but it seems like his step is going to be even further back now, uh, moving away from the business. Um, so, what do you think that means? I mean, are are we? Is this the end of of the John Cena era? He he's already such a, a kind of a part timer now. Uh, to to hear him talk about reducing it further, I wonder what we're left with. I mean, is it, is it the kind of situation where we maybe see John Cena once or twice a year? I don't know. I, I mean, he, he's bankable and WWE has a hard time letting go of bankable stars from yesterday. I mean, you look at WrestleMania and they bring, you know, over the past several years, bring back Triple H, bring back the undertaker, bring back whoever they, you know, bring back Shane McMahon and, and just have them on there. Uh, and that's really, I think, because, I suspect it's because WWE doesn't really have confidence in its current roster being able to sell out a 70,000-seat stadium or larger. Um, so I think that, you know, at the very least, you bring him back for the big shows. But I, I think that even if TV ratings take a dip, I think it's time to bring back John Cena. Um, he makes money. He can still go. He's still maybe a little bit past his prime, but certainly you wouldn't think so. I mean, his, his ring game hasn't slipped, but I mean, I, I believe he's near 40. So, I mean, he, I he's, he he's getting already. up there. Yeah. Uh, that's what I thought. Yeah, I wasn't quite sure. But so, I mean, that begins to take its toll, but the guy's obviously in amazing shape. He, he's, it's not like he's, you know, middle-aged and, and, you know, got the beer gut or something. He, he, you know, he, he at 40 looks better than Dick Murdoch did at, at 18, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. um, but he, he can still go, and I think it's kind of foolish because uh, if WWE doesn't continue to utilize him while he can still go, so yeah, let him take six months, eight months, ten months off, um, or you know, just mania. Do his film stuff, do whatever he's got to do, start the family, whatever, but uh, I think that we'll see him again. Whether or not we see him win a world title for the 17th time, you know, that's 16 is the mark they've announced with Ric Flair, and, and it's disputed depending on who you talk to, but it's generally acknowledged Ric Flair has the most world title runs at 16. And as a you know sign of respect to Flair, I think that 
both, uh, well, all three, Triple H, Randy Orton, and, and Cena may avoid that number to just to kind of defer. Uh, but if WWE, it'll be interesting to see if they really want to crown him as the greatest of all time, like Michael Cole repeatedly called him. Yeah, no mercy. there's more of that than ever uh, which before. Which struck yeah. me as odd, yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe they will, and, and give him the honorarium of being the guy who broke that, that record for what that's worth. Yeah, uh, but yeah. But long story short, I, I don't think that we've seen the last of John Cena in WWE ring, and I think that uh, we'll be talking about him at this time next year and probably for the next few years to come. Yeah, but the combination of, of again, his his, uh, his reaction, his behavior at the end of, of the match with the Reigns, the promo after that, he also gave an interview at on the Edge and, and Christian podcast where, again, he was sort of... Uh, uh, sort of looking back already, almost like a guy who, again, had more than one foot out the door. And the other part um, that I think kind of bring, makes the whole uh, picture a little more clear uh, is how they've rushed so many of these kind of dream matches, whether it was Nakamura um, or or Reigns on, on, you know, No Mercy, the October pay-per-view, kind of an off-brand pay-per-view, and, and a few others. I mean, they, they did Strowman, they've done Baron Corbin, um, and I think I'm, I'm for, forgetting uh, a couple others, but it just feels like we don't have them for that much longer. Let's get everything out of them um, that we can. Let's have them work with everybody. Jason Jordan was another one. So it does feel like maybe uh, this hiatus is going to be a little uh, longer and, and maybe not temporary. Uh, not that he doesn't come back, but uh, this might not be one of these deals where it gone for six months, work for six months, gone for six months. Uh, as you said, maybe he becomes sort of the Undertaker, where you see him at WrestleMania or or The Rock, and and that's it. I mean, uh, the guy who you just bring in for uh, the real special matches, and uh, can't begrudge him at all. I mean, who who has earned that more than than John Cena? You talk about uh, a workhorse. Uh, so so God bless him, and it's great that this comes at his own choosing. It's not him being uh, uh, demoted. Uh, it, it's him deciding to step away, and for all the right reasons, you know, uh, financial opportunities and uh, uh, family and uh, getting married. So uh, he's doing everything right. But uh, you know, I, I mentioned it in in my my take in the five hundred, and not to sound like kind of an old curmudgeon, but. Uh, fans don't know how good they've had it with John Cena, and I think when he disappears for a while, uh, you know, I, I think they may start to realize what a, a, a commodity he was uh, and how invaluable he was. And you know, it, he, those are tough shoes to fill. Uh, so uh, we will see. So uh, what else came out? I guess the other uh, uh, big news, um, not on the the Raw side, but but it's uh, I guess the biggest angle heading into the next pay per view. Uh, Hell in the Cell, Shane McMahon and Kevin Owens. We haven't talked about it since it happened, the big angle with, with Vince McMahon. Uh, a lot of kind of controversy over it, mixed feelings uh, about a 70-plus-year-old man out there getting headbutted really, really hard and, and taking the kind of bumps that he did. Uh, certainly a memorable angle. I do think it, it built heat for that program. Uh, what were your thoughts on it? Were you uneasy about it? No, I loved it. I, I really? thought it was great. Uh, yeah, I, I really did. I mean, Vince is, um, it, it's just a shame, though, that as big as it was, uh, and I remember the day after it happened, uh, just checking Reddit, checking other places out and kind of lurking around. I, I like to do that just to get a feel of what people are talking about and what, what kind of stands out. And, man, that was all talked about all the next day. Everybody was buzz, uh, buzzing about the Kevin Owens Vince McMahon segment, and it died down 
quickly. Like, I mean, it, it just kind of happened and then went away and then people talk about the next subject. Um, and back almost, I think, 20 years ago, last week or so, was when uh, Steve Austin first uh, gave the Stone Cold Stunner to Vince McMahon. Uh, and that had been building for months and months and months. And it was the first time that Austin had physical contact. And McMahon took a bump and the crowd went ballistic. And man, I, I think Austin got arrested in that. And I think that's how that scene ended. But that set up that whole program with this big build and, and that kicked it into high gear. Uh, and that was not officially the start, but right around the start of the Attitude Era. And this time you had Kevin Owens assault Vince McMahon and 24 hours later it's kind of bumped to the back page. People aren't paying as much attention to it. Um, but I think it was really well done. It's just that it's, it doesn't feel like this program necessarily has legs. I mean, Shane McMahon, another part-time guy against Kevin Owens. I mean, it, I don't like the payoff as much as, obviously, you were able to build two years' worth of programming off of Vince versus uh, Steve Austin and essentially win Monday Night Wars. The stakes now are much lower it was good for what it was, but, um, you know, it, it seems like a filler program to me. I think one of the problems is that Shane definitely has a, a kind of charisma. That's unquestionable, right? And, and he is over with fans. Uh, but I feel like he's a little miscast uh, in this role. You know, when he came out the following week and cut that promo, um, it was a little anticlimactic, uh, you know. And, and part of it just goes to, again, WWE's overscripting of everyone. And I feel like, in particular, as of late, it's been really, really bad. And, and it's not that they're scripted, but people are really talking in ways that people don't talk. I mean, so I, I wish I had a, a transcript in front of me of that promo, but it was the most unnatural kind of wording um, that you would hear about somebody whose 70-something-year-old dad was attacked last week. He was just talking like, again, like he was uh, reading a novel or something. And, and what it should be is just, you know, cursing and, and kind of frothing at the mouth. And, and I want to get my hands on you and I want to destroy you, that kind of thing. And, and that's not really what it was. Uh, so I, I think uh, Shane disappointed a little bit in, in his performance. And, and the writers absolutely uh, disappointed. But unquestionably, the, the angle was super hot. And I'd have no problem with it. And, and I can't profess to know exactly how, you know, all, all the magic works in WWE. But if it is the case that he was just headbutted really hard, and that's certainly what it looked like, uh, I do think that was really stupid and, and ill-advised, knowing what we know about uh, concussions and CTE and... Um, and, and WWE's uh, 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 ban on a lot of moves, rightfully so. I just think, you know, it, it needs to come from the top down, and it seems like it happens so much with the McMahons in particular, and that extends to Triple H, is that the rules don't apply to them, and they right. might, might wear that as kind of a badge of honor that, you know, I'll, I'll go out there and I'll do anything, and, and uh, I wouldn't ask anything of, of my, my employees that I wouldn't do myself, uh, but it, it kind of cuts both ways, and... and uh, you know, that, that angle got a ton of heat and, and a, the kind of heat that a lot of wrestlers wish they could get for their angles. But the fact is, they just can't, they're not allowed to do that kind of thing. Uh, so uh, I thought that was, you know, I think you could have done basically the same angle uh, and and had been equally effective and not as ill-advised for a number of reasons. The, the blood, which, uh, again, there's some hypocrisy there and some double standards and just the danger of, of a, a straight-on, um, uh, headbutt like that. I always think back to 
uh, a Nigel McGuinness, Daniel uh, Bryan match, Bryan Danielson match from yeah. 2005 in England. Did you see that one with yeah, the, uh, uh, the headbutts into the, the turn post? And I think it was Nigel at the end of it just had that giant knot in his head. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know what the specifics are and what became of, of Nigel McGuinness's wrestling career. But the fact is it ended really, really early. Um, so... I hate stuff like that. I really do. I mean, and you could be really invested in the match, and you see a stupid bump like that, and and it drives me crazy. And and if anybody should know better, uh, Vince McMahon should know better. But um, I do think the program has got a ton of heat, and and it's something that WWE doesn't do all that well these days. I think it is a hell in the cell worthy match, which again, something they haven't been great at. I mean, very often hell in the cell matches uh, take place just because it's October and. Whoever's in a program at that time gets a Hell in a Cell match, but this feels Hell in a Cell worthy because, in, in part because uh, Owens has been just so great. He's been phenomenal uh, in this program. And um, I I don't have a problem with Shane McMahon uh, winning. In fact, I think he, he should win, and I've, I'd almost never say that in, in a Shane McMahon program. And, and I, you know, when, when they booked him against Styles at WrestleMania or Undertaker, I thought it was it was laughable that he'd even get much offense in. But in this program, with these cir- circumstances and and uh, the Hell in a Cell gimmick, where you could do all the weapons and all that, um, I I don't have a problem with Shane going over. How about you? Yeah, I mean, well, if, if Shane's going to be uh, an occasional wrestler, um, he, he needs to win a match every yeah. once in a while, I suppose. And yeah, it, it again, it's it's smoke and mirrors. I I, I really don't like. Hell in a Cell matches. I don't like Elimination Chamber matches. I don't like these stiff matches. And I'm probably in the minority on those. But even I, I thought that the, the Braun Strowman um, Roman Reigns match at No Mercy, I thought that that was kind of contrived and silly because it, it, Cena walked out of the ring. Or, I'm sorry. No, it was the, the, um, no, it was the Cena match uh, against, against Roman Reigns. Oh, um, yeah. Cena walked out of the ring uh, because of fans were booing him. Roman chased him down. They brawled outside the ring for like four minutes. Towns, referee coming out. Um, hit a big move outside. Exchanging fault. Go to the outside table. Fault finishes again, and they go to the finish. And it was just, come on, man. Match to it. There's no artistry to it. You're just relying on outside the ring. Throw into the steps. Throw them into the other steps. And, and that's what those matches to me. It's just the cage, we do this, we do this, we do this, let's find one big bump that they'll talk about and go home. Um, and that's the kind of match that you get out of Shane McMahon. Um, so in that setting and with that, that opponent, to tell a story, but it certainly not that much. You're breaking up some, Dan. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you're With that... All right, can you hear me now? Yes. You got me? Yes, I got you. All right. All right. Yeah, it, I think it'll work in the kind of match and, and tell a story, but it's just not a match I want to see. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it, it. I had a bigger problem with Shane and AJ because there, there wasn't a stipulation, so we had to just buy that Shane could hang in there with the best wrestler in the world in, in a wrestling match, and they did have a, a good wrestling match. It might be the best match at WrestleMania, actually. Uh, but but the whole time you're watching it, even as you're enjoying it, it it, it takes suspending disbelief to a level that, that is hard to do. In in this circumstance, basically a, a brawl where anything goes, uh, I'll have less of a problem. Uh, Shane getting some offense on Owens and even ultimately winning because I'm sure, however he wins, if he wins, it's going to require 
some plunder, you know, uh, and and that's okay. So uh, uh, yeah, we'll see. Uh, I I think it could be a fine match. Uh, you, you mentioned I I wanted to touch on uh, Braun Strowman and Brock Lesnar because there was so much build, and uh, you you and I had uh, an exchange uh, over uh, uh, email, and I think we we very much have different views on on Strowman and that match, uh, and. Uh, I, I should say I, I didn't think it was a very good match. I think it was somewhat disappointing, but I don't put that really on on Strowman um, because I, I think that I think WWE let him down by kind of uh, not really positioning him in, in, in the best light. That should not have been a standard wrestling match, you know. You know, all this talk about uh, Hell in a Cell and, and Smoke and Mirrors and all that. That's a match that would have benefited from Smoke and Mirrors because the angle that that led up to it was. Uh, at SummerSlam with the tables and throwing the table on top of them, and that's what Strowman does uh, best. And and I got a new appreciation and insight from him in my interview with him. Um, you know, he had a, a big career as a, a strongman before he came in to WWE, and that's really what he brings to the table is that he's incredibly strong and can do these uh, crazy feats of strength, and th- there needs to be more of that. And uh, Lesnar, as, as talented and athletic as he is, uh, he always benefits from being in with somebody who is more agile, smaller, faster, uh, and, you know, that's not Strowman. And that doesn't mean that this match couldn't have worked because, you know, the 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 formula in some ways for this match was Lesnar's matches with Goldberg. Not necessarily that short, but it just should be big impact, big impact, two big muscular, powerful guys clashing. And this just kind of became a wrestling match, and uh, I don't think that benefited either of them. Uh, and I, I do think it it knocked Strowman down a peg and exposed him, but I don't put that on him. I put that on, on WWE. I mean, they, they need to be uh, protecting him and showing him in the, the best light, and this wasn't it. I agree with a lot of that. I mean, it, it begs to be said that Strowman's only been wrestling for about two years. He, what I he mean, told me that interview he, he, was that he, before he debuted on Raw, he had wrestled eight times. That's crazy. Okay, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so he was fast-tracked. He, he did a WWE pay-per-view two years into the business with probably less than 150 matches to his credit, maybe. I mean, total career, um, which is just insanity. Um, and he was in there against Brock Lesnar. They, they put him in a tough position. But, but he was also, as much as the fans were behind him, uh, and he was kind of the de facto babyface of the match, uh, his wrestling style is still a heel style. Um, he doesn't know how to, you know, it's, it's wrestling 101. Uh, with psychology, the heel dominates the match, and the babyface has the hope spots and rallies, and the fans get behind every rally and rally, and then you go to the finish and the exchanges and everything else, and the fans have a vested interest. Braun Strowman doesn't know, he doesn't work that style. He hasn't worked that style. So he came out there, Brock Lesnar shot in, he fought off the, the double leg, fought off the second double leg, fought off the German suplex, and then... Nothing. There was no real dominance. There was no psychology to it. It was just a dud of a match. And I think that Lesnar did his best to try to make Braun look good by avoiding the, the double leg shot, by fighting out of one German. And then he had to go deep in her, into his book and bring out the Kimura to, to weaken the, the giant down because, again, he hit the power slam twice, I think, but three times maybe total. Uh, but he kept landing on his left hand, so he, he couldn't, uh, you know, go for the cover right away. So it made sense, and they, they kind of worked around those those limitations. But the psychology of it was all wrong. And Braun Strowman, as much as people want, 
a, a fresh face on top. He's not the guy. Uh, he's just maybe he will be at some point, but right now he's just far too limited. And um, for WWE to put him in that position and to make it the main event of a, of a pay per view is just—it's embarrassing. I mean, they went nine minutes, and um, you know that's it, and it dragged. The, the crowd was dead two minutes into that match. Once they saw that ambulances weren't going to get flipped or it wasn't going to be, uh, you know, some kind of superhuman test of strength, the crowd just went silent for that match. And yeah. uh, I think not only did it take Braun Strowman down a peg, I think it dropped him down considerably. Um, it it kind of like when Scott Steiner challenged uh, Triple H in uh, 2003, I think maybe the Royal Rumble. Oh, yeah, that was awesome. came into it, Came into it on fire. The match was so lousy that Scott Steiner never got a whiff of the main event picture in WWE ever again. I don't think it was quite that bad, but it was close. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think it was that that bad. You know, I, I, as a match, I thought it was adequate. It it wasn't. I don't think it was a a bad match. It wasn't a very good match. There were some moments in it um, that uh, were fine. I, I didn't love him going down to one f five. I mean, again, after uh, you know, showcasing how strong he is and and popping back up from from the suplexes. Uh, to be defeated by one F five, I thought was bad. Even though I think they they somewhat effectively told the story of him uh, kind of running out of gas throughout the match and and becoming increasingly tired. And and while he could bounce up from one suplex after the fourth or fifth, uh, it started to to wear him down. So I think some of that worked. But yeah, he's looked the best. Strowman's looked the best when he is, as you said, tipping ambulances over or throwing tables on top of people. Uh, and that's the stuff that the fans uh, react to, and there there needs to be more of that. That said, I guess you can't do that in, in every Strowman match. You know, at some point, he needs to just uh, work a regular match. But, uh, you know, there there's all, all kinds of tricks to really hide his shortcomings. Uh, and, and I think it's really admirable how far along he, he's come. I mean, he's had matches uh, with the Big Show, that, that, that cage match uh, on Raw a few weeks ago, which was... You know, you're talking about the Big Show and Braun Strowman. That doesn't sound exactly like the makings of a great match, but they had a very good match, you know. And I think the one thing that Strowman does know is um, he gets working big man style. And uh, he, he gets what his character is and what the appeal is. And it is just brute strength and destruction and just unbridled violence. Uh, and uh, I think he didn't get enough to sh- get to show enough that in that match, and, and that uh, did hurt him. But I don't think it's something that uh, he can't bounce back from relatively easily. I don't know, don't know exactly where he goes from here, uh, though. You know, um, assuming the the program with Lesnar is over, and it seems that way, uh, I, I don't know what. You know, one one thing that has come up, and maybe this is a good segue here, is uh, the S.H.I.E.L.D. reunion, and there's some thought that maybe he ends up somehow involved uh, in that. Um, What do you think about the the potential for a S.H.I.E.L.D. reunion? Does does the time feel right? I don't think so. I mean, you know, a S.H.I.E.L.D. reunion would be good, I guess, but they've all been babyfaces for the past few months now. We've seen uh, Dean Ambrose side-by-side with... um, uh, with Roman Reigns in the past. Now we see Dean with Seth Rollins. It's, I mean, I, you can bring them back, but I mean, it's not like you're reuniting the four horsemen here. I mean, the Shield had a, a decent run two years ago, but you know, our Shield reunion, I don't know. Uh, uh, it, it doesn't feel like it's a, a big enough deal. Uh, I don't think. I don't know. Yeah, I, I suppose you could bring it back, but 
it, it doesn't make a lot of sense too, in my opinion. I, I do think uh, that it, it could be a big deal. I do think it could be a, a selling point for a pay-per-view. Uh, you know, w- w- we wouldn't be talking about a long-term Shield reunion because all three guys have their own thing going on, and Reigns in particular is set up to be, you know, the guy, the, the new John Cena. They talked about the passing of the torch. So that doesn't work when you're one-third of, of an act or, or a faction. So ultimately, Reigns needs to be uh, on his own, and... Rollins and uh, Ambrose are doing well as a tag team, so um, they could stay together. So I, what I think it works as is the, the one-off special attraction. And in that setting, you want them to look great. You want them to win. You know, you want them to hit all their signature spots. It, it's really less about the match and, and facing a challenge as the entrance, the three of them coming down through the arena together you know, powerbombing somebody through a table, posing at the end, and that's it. And for for that kind of thing, uh, again, it's basically just a showcase, almost a squash. I think the Mistrage is fine. Uh, so what, you know, maybe they, they're looking to do that in Survivor Series. I think that would be fine. Um, I don't know if maybe you do a, a three-on-three with Survivor Series elimination uh, uh, rules. That would be that would be good. That yeah, would be fine. and then you I could mean, have them just run the through them. And, you want it. Right it, right, it feels more natural that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and, that would be and good. you know, all the members of the Shield survive, and they're left in there three on one with the Miz. Put them through a table, and and that's it. And you pose, and that's fine. Uh, and you know, I think it quenches that bit of thirst that fans have. But again, I, I, nobody should be expecting the the Shield to reunite as as a long term kind of thing. But uh, look, they're all in the same brand. They're all baby faces. It's as good a time uh, as any. Certainly, Roman Reigns could use something to to boost his cred with fans and uh, that might be one of the rare circumstances where he he will get cheered is as part of the shield so uh i'm fine with that and i'm fine with them kind of getting it out of the way before wrestlemania because clearly he's got um a bigger fish to fry at at wrestlemania so all right dan thanks so much i appreciate it uh we're just about 45 minutes here um we will be back soon we got a a bunch of fun interviews coming up in the next few weeks i got a backlog of of a lot of fun guests to get to so it's going to be a fun couple months here on the podcast and we begin it not with a new interview uh but as i said one that uh, harry burkett conducted some 11 years ago with Bobby the Brain Heenan. And I should also also mention that uh, the next issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, um, Harry's column, uh, deals with Bobby Heenan. I got a sneak a preview of it. Really touching, insightful, uh, beautiful writing, as Harry is known to do. So you'll definitely want to check that out. Uh, for the moment, let's check out, uh, again, Harry's 2006 interview with none other than the late Bobby the Brain Heenan. Well, you uh, joined the WWF at an exciting time. Like right before WrestleMania. Oh yeah. Now, as an insider, how risky was that first WrestleMania? Well, myself and Arnold Smolin, you know, I'm not old timers Arnold, but you know, I'm from the old school. And we're saying that we got Liberace here. He's using Billy Martin, Muhammad Ali. He's got the Rockettes. What in the hell is he doing? <laughs> just like Mark, this is the Gong Show. Mm-hmm. So then all of a sudden, you worked out the curtain, you saw Spike Lee there, you saw Dick Clark, you saw Cindy Lobner, uh, the place was jam-packed, the front page of the New York Times, on New York TV News the next day, I think it was Hogan, Piper, and Mr. T, and probably uh, Bob Orton Jr. on the cover of Orndorff, uh, front page, and I said, my God, this guy's got his 
and Chandra the Giant. What was that like, and what's what's your favorite memory of him? Uh, he, he, he was a sweetheart. Yeah, no, the funniest thing he ever did. He's a, uh, oh, he's a lot of funny things, but we well, on an airplane, and it's like six o'clock in the morning. You know, I'd be like to have a few, right? Mm-hmm. So he's pulling the armrest up in first class between us, so he have a little more room. So I'm over by the window. So the stewardess comes by. She's working on the seat there. She said, "I think I can get you." Andres says, "Screwdriver." About ten minutes, she comes back with a black and decker screwdriver. <laughs> Andres looks at her. He says, "What would you have brought me if I'd have said Bloody Mary?" <laughs> Journalist before in the no. capacity? No. What happened was, 
I was just, I never did any commentary that I can think of. Mm-hmm. I was just a manager, so I'm an annoying bastard. But Jesse Ventura went to do a movie with Arnold, the... Uh, Predator. Yeah. And he was doing prime time with... Uh, commentary come naturally for you? It was here in um, Ocean City, Maryland, and then he drove up to New Jersey. After. What happened was they were dri- him and uh, Harvey Whippleman. Yeah. They were driving to Newark, and they stopped and got something to eat. And Whippleman says, uh, "You want me? You want me to drive?" Joey says, "No, I'll, I'll, I'll drive." And Whippleman fell asleep mm. while they were driving. Joey fell asleep, and he died at the exit to Monsoon's house. Wow. Yeah, and Joey fell asleep, and Whippleman got out of the car. He knows Joey didn't get out of the car. He was dead, and he was, and he was driving, and he had a seatbelt on, and Whippleman didn't. Wow. So, so what was the nature of their accident again? How did it happen? I mean, um, did they run into another car? Or? No, they fell asleep and were off the shoulder of the road into a tree. Okay. Okay. Wow. Now, by wrestling standards, <laughs> I remember you left the WWF in a very classy way with the monsoon throwing toilet paper at you as he kicked you out the door. I fell out of my bag. I was stealing everything from the hotels. Right. <laughs> was, was it important to you to leave the WWF 
in that type of way? Jeff asked me, he said, how do you want to leave? And he, he left it up to me. I said, have my student throw me out of the building. It was a white place in New York. <laughs> and he, I said, have my student throw me out of the building. He said, okay. So, um, I think it's one of the most memorable exits because so many times people just leave without kind of a whimper. That, that was you know, the funny thing is, my mother-in-law wouldn't watch it. She cried. <laughs> and so did my wife. Wow. But I said, no, I have I have all this shit in my bag I got stolen from the hotels, towels and light bulbs and, you know, a couple of Bibles and, you know, towels and shit, toilet paper. So, and then the funny thing is, he threw me out, I'm picking all this shit up, and I, there's a bus, and I'm asking him to give me a ride to LaGuardia. Mm -hmm. And my son was parked around the side of the bus, and I got in the car with him, and we went to the Marriott in LaGuardia, where we were staying. Uh -huh. We never said nothing on the way. And uh, we got there, and we got the elevator, and we got off on the same floor. And I said, well, I, I see you later, you big ape. He said, okay. <laughs> and I walked down to my room, and there was a basket of fruit in there. Mm -hmm. So I called him, and I said, hey, you want a banana? <laughs> he said, yeah. I said, the, the manager sent up some fruit for me. He said, yeah. I said, I'll meet you the elevator. So I took the basket of fruit to the elevator, and I gave it to him there, and we hugged each other and cried for a half hour. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, maybe with my bananas. <laughs> so, um, when did you join WCW? Was it right after that? Uh, after that, I went and did, um, I did one pay-per-view for the Wonderful Women of Wrestling. Okay. And I knew the promoter from Minneapolis, Dave McClain, so. Okay. I did that for him. And I, I was going to go up to Hollywood and get an agent and, uh, try to do, uh, some action, do commercials. Mm -hmm. Then I realized, after being in one movie with Oakland, called Time Master, more people are watching the surveillance cameras at Walmart than I've ever seen this one. <laughs> wow. And uh, it's just so much sitting time. And, you know, and people are dumb. They think these guys are just easy. It's not. you got to memorize these lines. And you don't only have to know your lines. i got to know your lines. I know when to talk and not to talk. Yeah. you got to know my mark. And these people out there, they're auditioning for each other. They're going to 12, 15 readings a day. At nighttime, they're working as waiters or waitresses in bars. I'm a, I'm a 50-year-old guy. I, I, I need a job. I have bills to pay. And I can't take off a year of my life to fly back and forth to L.A. or move out there trying to find a job. And I realized then it'd be too hard. And then WCW called me and wanted to know if I'd be interested in just doing their Sunday night show. Mm -hmm. I said, sure. And they gave me a hell of a price. And I said, sure. I thought, my God, I got my foot in the door now. They're this dumb. I'll own the company in a year. <laughs> and then, sure enough, something happened with Jesse. And Jesse and Flair didn't hit off or something. And Jesse thinks it's Hogan's fault, but I don't know. But Jesse left, so then they started me doing Jesse stuff. So I told him, I said, yeah, I'm doing more work. I should have more money. So they gave me uh, a raise I couldn't believe. And I had medical. Wow. So I went ahead and had my neck operated on. Well, that seemed to work out. What, what were the major differences that you noticed right away between working for the WWF and WCW? Oh, my God. I'd be like playing for the Yankees and the Mud Hens. <laughs> I mean, they didn't know what production was. And there were some good people there, you know, that worked there. It worked hard. But, I mean, you had an announcer in Tony Schiavone that didn't like wrestling. He didn't like talent. And he hated the fans. Well, he did a lousy job. He wasn't any good. Uh 
And he wouldn't tell you what was going on. He tried to stab everybody in the back. He was a real insecure little, little man. Uh, and, but they didn't do anything about it. They had 27 brokers. They, they put the belt once on David Arquette. Oh, my God. They had Bagwell and his mother as tag teams uh. one time. They beat Goldberg. They just did stupid things. You're dredging up awful memories. Oh, my God. And then, I'm, I'm, and, and then the, the Bishop did one day, he announced on our live show, and we started at 8, and they started at 9. Now, who was that? Was, huh? Who was that you're talking about? Eric Bishop. Okay. And him and I and Steve McMichaels were doing Nitro. Uh, yeah. And he announced live on our show that the show tonight you're watching on Raw is a tape show. Yeah, I remember that. And, and, and Mick Foley wins the belt. Not everybody's going to watch it, right? Boy, right. that dumb fucking move. <laughs> they did things like that. You know, they were so dumb. They, they, if somebody kidnapped their kid, they sent, the kidnappers would send their kid home with a ransom note, and they sent it back with the money. <laughs> I mean, they didn't know what they were going to be. Put the belt on Bagwell's mother. What's the matter? Was Jaja sick that week and couldn't make it? Uh, you're, well, you're forgetting about Vince Russo as world champion. I was gone then. <laughs> yeah, Vince Russo, he was the higher actors because he said they could do the same as the boys and they're cheaper. You know, he, you know, if he was a restaurant, he'd be selling knockoff Yankee hats outside of Shea Stadium. So, what was Eric Bischoff's job when you first got there? Was he in the corporate hierarchy at that point? He was an announcer. Yeah. And the guy who was running the place was a guy named Bill Shaw. Bill Shaw and Jim Hurd. Not Jim Hurd, he was gone. Bill Shaw and... Was it... Chip Fry? No, he was gone by then. Gone by then? Okay. Uh, it was Eric, but Dusty was the booker. Okay. Kind of. And it was the main guy who hired me was Bischoff. So he was kind of loosely in control there. Because the Bob Dew, Bob Dew. You know Lori Dew on Fox News, the blonde-haired one with the big lips? Oh, oh yes. The, the, on Geraldo's show? The Fox of Fox News. Yeah. Her, her dad, Bob Dew, <laughs> and Bill Shaw ran it for Turner, but they didn't want to have anything to do with it, so they just let Bishop run it. Okay. So Bishop hired me, he hired Hogan, he hired Savage, he hired uh, Bret Hart, Roddy Piper. Uh, he spent a lot of money on a lot of people. and. Uh, you know, Hogan and getting Dennis Rodman and the National Exposure and some of the things he did was good, but he didn't know how to follow up on anything because mm -hmm. we were number one for one year. That doesn't make you successful. That makes you lucky. Yeah. You don't be successful. You'd be number one for a lot of years. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the more people remember the Yankees have one more championship than the Marlins. What was the World Series winners one time. So, so generally, what did you think of Eric as a boss? Oh, horrible. Horrible, uh, Works you know, habits and skills. He wouldn't. He wasn't a friendly guy. He would. No one ever said good job to anybody. They would always tell you when you did something wrong. And uh, it, it was an atmosphere where there was little functions of people that were out for themselves. And it was just a horrible condition. I asked him. I said, Eric, how about you not having a beer tonight after work? Get to pick each other's brain a little bit. Mm -hmm. I'm not a real friendly guy, Bobby. <laughs> I, no problem. Hey, we seemed up front and said that. 
Uh, I saw him at WrestleMania in uh, Chicago last year. He came up and shook hands. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they said, well, this guy was a bad booker, this guy was a bad booker, this guy was horrible. Hey, who hired them? Yeah. Like me, I couldn't do hockey. I couldn't pronounce those names. I don't read them or spell them. Uh-huh. I don't even know the game. So I couldn't do that. Some people just aren't qualified to do that. And the people that were running at the time weren't qualified to do it. Or they still be in business. It's a television company. Yeah, when I knew that AOL was buying it, I said, I, I could see some of the different people in the departments. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill Shaw had a daughter working in the department. All of a sudden, she got transferred to the Cartoon Channel. Uh-huh. So she was going to stay in turn. So I just knew there was AOL was coming, wrestling was going. I see what you mean. Well, I don't mean to get you worked up about this one, but uh, you got a little bit of grief for something, which was uh, your commentary on the night that Hulk Hogan joined the New World, New World Order. When Hogan came down the aisle, and I think you said, what, what side is he on? I've heard you get a little grief over that, although I think it was completely in keeping with your character since you were always uh, accusing Hogan of, of being up to something. Do you remember that? What's your take on that? No, I don't remember that. I, I got grief for it. I've heard it over the years. Maybe you've never heard it. That no, no, no one's ever said a thing to me about it. Okay. It's something about when Hogan was coming down the aisle and he's, you know, he's supposed to be charging the ring because Sting and Randy Savage are in trouble. And supposedly he said, uh, what side is he on? And some people thought that might have tipped people off, that he was about to turn, just the fact that you brought it up as a question. I don't remember. I might have done it. <laughs> okay. He was going to turn in the next four seconds anyway. That's right. That's right. Okay. No, I don't remember. I remember saying, what the fuck on TV? Oh, I remember that too. <laughs> <laughs> that was as a pillman. That's correct. But what happened was, from listening to Monsoon, you always watch the monitor. You don't watch what's going on in the ring because they may not be shooting what's going on in the ring. That's right. So if my guy's in the ring getting out a pair of knocks and I'm calling it, they may be shooting the guy in the tag team in the other corner. So I'm watching and there's the guy's in the ring doing something. Thomas on the floor, he sneaks up behind me, pulls my coat down. I thought it was a fan. Oh. Came over the rail. And I, I said, uh, it was supposed to have protection behind my back because of my neck. And I, I, I pulled my jacket out and it scared me. And I said, what the fuck? It was coming. And I started storming off and I started laughing. I said, where, where am I going? <laughs> so I went back and sat down. I went back and I told everybody backstage, I apologize. Anybody else said, for what? I said, I said, fuck. But you did. They weren't watching. No one ever said a word to me. That's funny. Now, I remember some of the ringside fans actually cheered you when that happened. When you got up, they must have heard you and they realized something unexpected was going on. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know. I, I realized I said it, and I thought, well, what the hell have I done now? And I thought, well, it, it said. So I'm not going to apologize. And I said, you know, I don't mean to say some things, but when you're angry and mad, sometimes it just happens. And I apologize if I offend anyone. That's what I said, and I dropped it. <laughs> well, I don't know how well you and Tony Schiavone got along off camera, but I, I did like your rapport. On camera, it's, it, I guess because of the nature of Nitro, those two and three hour shows, it was kind of a little bit looser and the back and forth seemed a little more genuine. I just remember sometimes he would just bust out laughing when you would make some kind of quick remark. Tony, Tony was a nice guy yeah. at first. I, I liked Tony. I even gave Tony a couple of suits. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had him over to my house on a couple of occasions. And when he 
by him. And uh, the bottom was falling. I said, hey, I told him, he said, hey, this ship is going down. <laughs> you guys better grab some more rats. <laughs> Tony said, you're a bunch of paranoid son of a bitches. And then Tony wasn't even dressed in the trailer with us. He stood outside. He was so paranoid about losing his job. And Eric said, I'm going to get him to the work. I'm going to work. <laughs> so Tony went out and bought a leather jacket and put some grease in his hair like Fonzie. It was 180 degrees out. <laughs> oh, he's an idiot. <laughs>